Hi everyone, Steve Shepard here with the Natural Curiosity Project. Over the course of the last couple of years, I've found myself increasingly fascinated by the sounds of the natural world. Bird calls, frog racket, haunting whale song, waves on beaches, the wind striking various things, and so on. But I've also come to understand that these sounds are actually voices. The voices of those who speak a language that we're just beginning to think we understand. Yesterday, I saw an article that talked about how sand dunes, of all things, talk to each other, not in the sense that we talk to each other, but as autonomous objects that essentially share information, information in the form of sound, to maintain velocity and direction as they march across the desert. You know, one aspect of this podcast has taken me in an interesting direction. I mean, interesting to me anyway. I hope you find it interesting as well. I've discovered that there are dozens of people out there who make it their vocation, or at least their pathologically serious avocation, to capture these sounds. Why they do it is all over the map. Some record for the pure joy of finding a place that's rattling with birdsong in the early morning and then sitting down and immersing themselves in it. For them, the recording part is almost an option. Bernie Krauss is an acoustic ecologist who records massive soundscapes year over year so that he can determine what's happening in that same place with regard to the expansion or contraction of species, particularly in response to human intrusion. Chris Haas, whom I interviewed in an earlier episode, does similar work, which she shares on her website, Wild Mountain Echoes. Gordon Hempton, who bills himself as the sound tracker, is on a personal mission to save the very, very few places that still exist in the world where a person can sit for 15 minutes, 15 minutes, without hearing a sound made by humans. Why? Because in his mind, silence isn't a measure of the absence of sound. It's a measure of the presence of everything. And the places where someone can actually enjoy 15 minutes of silence are disappearing. Chris Watson, who's the president of the Wildlife Sound Recording Society, is a musician, one of the founders of the group Cabaret Voltaire. But more to the point, he records sound for some of the BBC's most iconic programs about the natural world, including many with David Attenborough. David Bechkel, who I profiled in this podcast a few months ago, works in Denali National Park for the National Park Service. His title is Senior Bioacoustician, and his job, well to trek by whatever means possible into the park's backcountry, set up recorders that capture sound for an entire uninterrupted month, and then use the recordings to create a sound map of the park. It's a way to determine what the various species who live in the park are actually doing. Roger Boughton, my friend and colleague in the Wildlife Sound Recording Society and someone whom I consider to be a mentor, has forgotten more about wildlife sound than I'll ever know, hence the mentor title. He's been capturing nature's voice for decades all over the world. Roger records because he wants to share those sounds with the next generation and with those of the current generation who will listen, because it's important. These people chronicle the voices of the natural world. They speak for those whose voices we don't hear unless we make a deliberate effort to listen. They show us the beauty and importance and relevance of voices we simply don't easily understand. We have an obligation to listen, because by ignoring them, we fail to hear one of the most important messages out there, that our impact on the other species that share this planet, both zoological and botanical, has reached a point where the damage we cause through our uncontrolled existence as a species is rapidly becoming irreversible. 
Now, don't worry, I'm not about to launch into a deep, dramatic climate change diatribe here because we know it's real and we know it's happening. We also know that there are naturally occurring warming and cooling cycles that the planet goes through. But here's what else we know. As a species, humans are accelerating the warming of the planet because of the greenhouse gases we send into the atmosphere. We've measured them. We have historical data to prove it. It's conclusive. As climate scientist Dan Young observed in another episode in this series, unless something changes, the end result is a planet with no climate differentiation. The poles warm and melt. The equatorial regions cool. An average temperature of about 50 degrees Fahrenheit spreads across the globe. Sea levels rise, drowning large pieces of solid ground and whatever happens to live there. Oceanic salinity declines, killing uncountable species, including the phytoplankton that live in the oceans and that produce 80% of the world's oxygen. The equatorial rainforests die off because of temperature change, taking with them both their oxygen-producing capabilities and the countless species that live in them. Insects die off, including honeybees and other pollinators. And when the pollinators disappear, so do the plants they fertilize, including those that produce the fruits and vegetables and livestock feed that we depend on. The real irony in this message is that the planet's not in trouble. We are. George Carlin used to do a routine in which he made fun of our attempts to save the planet. Nonsense, he argued. Sooner or later, the planet will get tired of us and flick us off like a person flicking a June bug off their shoulder. It's not the planet we should be worrying about. It's us. If we continue down this road without taking stock of our impact and doing something about it, then we deserve what we get. As soon as the production of oxygen and food-producing plants and animals comes to a halt, so will we. Once we're gone, the planet will once again seek equilibrium. That's just how systems work. Now, this isn't to say that we have to stop all uses of plastic or completely end the use of fossil fuels or stop eating methane-producing meat. That's ridiculous, but it's high time we became responsible about how we do those things. For example, what if we use the technology we have in hand to create truly smart communities built around the idea of better pedestrian walkways, really effective public transportation, and more electric vehicles? What if we simply eliminated the use of single-use plastic using paper instead? We can't get rid of plastic. It's too important in far too many industries. We also can't eliminate the use of oil-based technologies because of all the things that petroleum becomes once it's refined, including medical devices, semiconductors, scientific apparatus, and medications. But we can reduce its use by actively seeking alternatives. This isn't a boil-the-ocean initiative. It starts at the local level with individual action leading the charge. And what I mean by that is that a small action taken in your own world, you know, stop using plastic straws, for example, or buy large containers of bulk items like laundry soap and refill a smaller container from them instead of throwing the smaller container out. These little actions performed across a large population are what make the greatest difference. This is why biologist E.O. Wilson, whom you know is one of my heroes if you listen to this podcast regularly, talks about what he calls his half-Earth initiative. He doesn't mean to imply that we should pick one half of the Earth, say the Eastern Hemisphere, and make it off-limits to humans. That's asinine. What he means is that we share this place with other species, so let's make sure we leave space for them to live as well. For example, in the far corner of my yard, I have a brush pile that I've allowed to just go wild. 
It's about 10 square feet of my yard. I keep it neat, but it's surrounded by local weeds and flowering plants, which in the spring and summer are covered with local insects, going about the business of creating the next generation of whatever it is they're pollinating. Chickadees and brown creepers and juncos fly in and out seeking bugs and seeds. Voles, mice, squirrels, and chipmunks have taken up long-time residence in the understory. Toads, newts, and snakes are there as well. In other words, by simply setting aside a small area and staying away from it, by letting nature do what nature does, I've created a habitat for local life. That's all it takes, and that's what Ed Wilson means when he talks about half-Earth. Technology is a great thing because it's one of the forces that moves human society forward toward a better version of itself. But one of our technologies, the power of speech, has given us a wonderful expression that we should all heed. In its success lie the seeds of its own destruction. We have become extraordinarily successful, but at what cost? Success is measured in a bunch of different ways, but one of them, one of the most telling, is longevity and survival. Darwin never said survival of the fittest. He did, however, say that those that survive are those that are most adaptable to change. I don't think we get many points these days for adaptability. We might want to think about that. So rather than end on that kind of bummer of a message, let me end with this. Circling back to my thoughts about wildlife sound recordists, I want to introduce you to another one whom I had the opportunity to interview not too long ago by telephone. His name is Lang Elliott, and his website is called The Music of Nature. Lang also has a wonderful app in the Apple App Store called Pure Nature 3D Soundscapes. I keep it on my home screen, and I listen to it all the time. Please check it out. Our phone conversation wandered all over the landscape, no pun intended. And in part two of this episode, I'll share the best parts of it. Like all of us, Lang is enchanted by the music of the natural world and loves to take his listeners along for the ride when he heads into the forest. Here he is with a quick introduction. You know, if I'm here for some reason in the sense of, you know, helping humanity or, or the world, maybe just all of nature, it's, it's to celebrate, to reflect the beauty of nature, uh, that I'm here as a living entity with the ability somehow, you know, to appreciate and to reflect. I know that I am made, for whatever reason, my history as a kid where I grew up, I'm made to celebrate nature. We'll continue this conversation in part two. I'll see you there. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. Thanks for listening. And by the way, just to leave you in a good place, here's a little bit of Lang's work.